Hello and welcome to the Ackerman Center podcast, where we explore Holocaust-related topics during the time of our new virtual reality. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Valente, Visiting Assistant Professor of Holocaust Studies at the University of Texas at Dallas. In today's episode, I'm joined by two guests, Dr. Niels Romer, the Interim Dean of the University's School of Arts and Humanities, who holds the Stan and Barbara Rabin Professorship in Holocaust Studies, and who is the Director of the Ackerman Center for Holocaust Studies at the University of Texas at Dallas. And a very special guest, all the way from California, Morgan Bloom-Schneider. Morgan is the Director of the Jewish Family and Children's Services Holocaust Center in San Francisco, where she has been an instrumental leader in the development and success of the center since 2005. I'm so excited to welcome Morgan to be in conversation with us today. Welcome to the Hackerman Center podcast, and thank you for being here with us. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's such a pleasure to connect with colleagues in this um, fabulous medium. We're very excited to have you, Morgan. So tell us a little bit about your center. For how long has it existed? So our center is about 41 years old. Um, It has an interesting history uh, in San Francisco. So while we serve all of Northern California, we are rooted in San Francisco. And in the late 70s, as I imagine it was similar in your community, Holocaust education was not widespread. It was not discussed. Many of the survivors were not speaking publicly. And in San Francisco, we had an incident. There was a neo-Nazi bookstore that opened up in the Sunset District. And the survivor community was just outraged, as you can imagine. And they tried through all of the, you know, kind of straightforward channels to get this bookstore closed down, but it was not. And so one survivor, her name is Toba Weiss, she's still with us, and her son took it upon themselves to throw a brick through the window of this neo-Nazi bookstore. And I know it's very nice. amazing. If you met Toba, you, would, you could see that even now it would still be possible. And they were arrested, the, you know, everything came together, they were released, and the kind of white supremacist neo-Nazi movement, there isn't a large movement in San Francisco, but the individuals, they retaliated by throwing rocks through the windows of a a synagogue that was just about across the street. And this whole incident, you know, brought a lot of attention to the community. And it started a three-part resolution. So then our mayor was Dianne Feinstein, our current senator, but our um, mayor. And Dianne Feinstein helped to lead this three-part resolution, one which was the establishment of a Holocaust Memorial, which stands next to our Legion of Honor Museum in the Presidio, one which was the establishment of an annual Yom HaShoah program, and one was the establishment of a Holocaust Library and Resource Center, which was you know, very small. It was grassroots started by Holocaust survivors and other members of the Jewish community, but it was the start of who we became today. And we've had a journey. We were an independent 501c3 for many years. And in 2009, we joined the Jewish Family and Children's Services of San Francisco. Such an interesting history. I read on the website that you guys focus largely on educational programs for high schools and universities. Yeah. So in California, the Holocaust is mandated as part of the curriculum. However, there's no funding. There's no official training. It's not included in the standardized testing. 
So for many high school, middle school teachers, they are looking to organizations like ours for guidance, for resources, for support in this process. And we reach actually about 25,000 people a year through, through our programs. Um, our, we have programs within the four walls of the classroom. Now, of course, in the COVID reality, that looks a little bit different. So I'll say the virtual classroom in many ways, where we're supporting these students and these teachers, curriculum development, bringing survivors and descendants into the classrooms, um, really just trying to meet teachers where they're at. Because I imagine it's similar in your community. Some teachers have one day to teach the Holocaust. Some teachers have an entire semester. And what we strive to do in the curriculum that we develop and in the programming that we offer is to connect with where the students are at right now. So San Francisco is a very diverse community. San Francisco mm -hmm. has a large population of you know first generation Americans and so a lot of our programming you know lessons like the kinder transport lessons of refugees lessons of anti-semitism and racism really resonate in our community and so we do our best to you know connect with these issues that are happening in our society today and we a few years ago decided to take a more strategic initiative to working at the university level. So we had been doing seminars, often universities, local universities, San Francisco State, USF and Berkeley would send students to work in our archives and, and we would connect with people on an individual basis. They may have you know, testimony come into their classrooms. But we decided a few years ago that we wanted to create a formal program for university students. I was fortunate enough to go to Clark University where I had fabulous mentors and I had internship opportunities and I had you know, all the resources of Holocaust and genocide education at my fingertips. Now I know that an opportunity like being at Clark is, is very unique, but there are other students who are in universities who don't have that kind of intensive Holocaust and genocide studies supportive network. And so we wanted to create that because we believe that there are students in history programs and Jewish studies programs and museum studies programs who have a passion for Holocaust and genocide studies. And if they were mentored and if they had the opportunity to grow that interest, then they perhaps may continue in this field and so we developed our university fellowship. So we have three Pell University fellows and one Manville University fellow. And the program has been happening now for almost five years. And they are teaching assistants, they are research assistants. It's a paid fellowship. And many of them who have graduated from our program go on to do graduate work in the field to become high school teachers themselves, Fulbrights in Germany, and we're really proud to have helped be part of shaping this generation to continue in the field of Holocaust and genocide studies. That's fantastic. Very interesting. Let me ask you something because, you know, this has always been a little bit at the heart of, you know, also our mission that is evolving. So we're not quite as old, but our um, center is a little over 30 years old. So we're not trailing that far behind, but it was very clearly also set up initially by Holocaust survivor from, from Hungary. And mm -hmm. so it was very much focused exclusively on the Holocaust. And that has remained to this day, the focus really on, on much of what we do. But as of late, we've also evolved into 
opening ourselves up more for genocide studies as well as human rights issues. I suspect it'll be always a bit different for an academic center than for an educational center like yours. And so far as our job is to train students really in this, so my respective ability to do that on some other genocides is far more limited than maybe my ability to generally speak about this. But was that an easy transition for you to move from a Holocaust center to one that now does, like you say, Holocaust genocide education? You know, I think it really, it looked at it at two different sides. If you look at it from the interests of the students, there's so much passion and so much interest from students. They want to understand the patterns of the Armenian genocide, Rwanda, Cambodia, you know, and, and what's going on today in, you know, Sudan or, or in Myanmar, of course. And sometimes it takes a little bit of education of the community to support this initiative. And I'll say that, you know, 15 years ago, I was fresh out of grad school. I had been studying the patterns of genocide and looking at indigenous genocide. And I came into my work and the community that supported the Holocaust Center was just starting to grow their perspective on how can the Holocaust be taught. And, and one thing I always start with, whether it's in my classroom or whether I'm you know, speaking at a board meeting is that we do not create a hierarchy of suffering. You know, who are we to determine what mm -hmm. is a more of an extreme event? What was more severe? I focus on that each event is unique and each experience is unique, but there is great value in teaching these patterns and understanding this trajectory through history. And I'll say that in the last five years, there's been significant growth of interest in the community, um, adult community in genocide education. So I'll say the students were there first, and now I feel that the adult community has, has caught on to this interest. And you know, we work with partners like the USC Shoah Foundation who are doing tremendous work with their visual history archive, including Rwanda, including digitizing the Armenian collection. And they're great partners of ours and we use their resources in our classroom and you know, we look to colleagues around the world. I mean, we had a one of our first virtual community programs in April was about the Rwandan genocide. And we brought in a member of our speakers bureau who is originally from Rwanda. And we had a tremendous interest. Very interesting. I think that's also very much our experience. Our campus prides itself of having students from over a hundred different countries. And they all along had approached our center from respectively different entry points. They came to it because they were interested in Rwanda. They came to us because they were interested <clears throat> in the Armenian genocide. And so that also has, you know, over time transformed parts of our curriculum as well. So it's very similar, even though we are a university and you're dealing with an urban environment, but it's in lots of ways, you know, following the students, so to speak, learning from them in terms of where they are and what their respective you know, interests and needs are, so quite similar. If we look at the trajectory of Holocaust studies, right, much of the early studies were on the concentration camp and ghetto experience. And then after years of broadening the field of Holocaust studies, people began to include the stories of hidden children, of partisans and, and whatnot. And so I think it's, it, it's in a similar trajectory. Very true. Yeah. And I think we have similar communities. You know, this past semester, we taught a, for the first time a course on refugees, mm -hmm. exile, and human rights. 
And, you know, we have a large number of Hispanic students who are really drawn into these classes because of their own experiences. What kind of work does this, the center do directed at the Latino population of California? We, you know, actually just recently had a request from a teacher who is attending one of our virtual book clubs coming up and asking if they could get support in Spanish speaking materials. And so we, while we have not created our own curriculum that's in Spanish language, mm -hmm. there are great curriculums available that we share. Right. Absolutely. And we have staff that speak Spanish and, you know, we try to support the community that we're at. It has not been a need at this point. We find that most mm -hmm. students at the high school level have very strong English skills. Where we see the discrepancy mm -hmm. often is in doing family education and working with the parent exactly. generation. And I think, you know, I've had a lot of times some of the what invites us into a school, unfortunately, is an anti-Semitic incident. So, a, okay. you know, a school will have graffiti or they'll have some kind of issue on campus. They'll reach out to us. We'll work in partnership with the ADL and go in. And often mm -hmm. what I say is that you can't address an issue in the classroom unless you talk about how to address the issue in the school community. And that includes the parents, of course. And I think that there is a little bit of a challenge when um, some of the parents are not English speaking and haven't mm -hmm. had the foundation in Holocaust and Jewish education that um, perhaps people who you know were educated um, in California. And so that's that's something we work towards is trying to look at how we can create family education programs that are accessible to a broader community. You know, it's interesting. We've also, you know, on and off came up with this um, question as to whether the languages are boundaries and it's a question of accessibility. Mm -hmm. But I think in reverse, we also have uh, realized that sometimes it's another way of including um, other communities if you also allow them to participate in their native languages. Mm -hmm. So in many ways, you know, Holocaust Remembrance Day is, is an occasion always where we have students recite Holocaust poems, but in their native mm -hmm. languages. So we have them translate them into Arabic, Chinese, Spanish, Portuguese, and then they all recite them, but in their own languages. And so I think, you know, language is not just always a, just an issue of borders and, and of lack mm -hmm. of accessibility, but I think you bestow a certain kind of welcome upon someone if you allow them also to speak in their own language, at least in the, in the vein of these poems. And we always found that translating poems together is, is a kind of mm -hmm. leveling playing field because everyone deals with the same problems, no matter what, you know, your native language is. Absolutely. And so yeah. that it has worked for us always quite well. Mm -hmm. How about all of this now during the pandemic? How has that affected your ability to carry on with your mission? Absolutely. Well, it's a good question. You know, we... California was one of, and the Bay Area and San Francisco were one of actually the first cities to really shut down. So we, mm -hmm. in many ways, have a little bit of a, a lead on some of the other Holocaust centers um, in different cities throughout the world. You know, it's in, I, I personally am part of the lead of planning our annual day of learning. So this is a conference for about 700 students and teachers. And we had to cancel this conference and really shut down all in-person programming mm -hmm. about 36 hours before the conference. So it's a year's oh, wow. work in training. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and, you know, I can still remember that night sitting in the car, talking to our executive director, you know, reading the orders from our mayor and making this decision that, um, you know, we, we were not going to move forward. And honestly, you know, that was that was March 6th that we made that decision. 
And what we know now about public health, I'm actually very grateful that this order came out from our mayor's office that said no gatherings larger than, I think at the time, no gatherings larger than 100 people, right? Because at the time, you know, school was still in session, people were going to work, we were still figuring this out. But our conference that brings together 700 people from all over California, you know, could have been a major public health issue. And so I feel grateful that actually our city was so aggressive in you know, putting out these orders because it did, you know, head us off of the past. So while I'm very sad and I still, if I go into my office on occasion, which is empty, I still see all the registration packets, all the materials still packed up. <laughs> but we, we pivoted very quickly. And so, you know, we're lucky to be in a time of great technology. We're lucky to live in a community here in the Bay Area where people are very tech savvy. And we pivoted our programs very quickly. So, for example, the day of learning, we had 18 workshops ready to go. We have already had several of those workshops um, pivot and go into the virtual space. We turned our fellowships and our seminars into online programs. One of our programs called The Next Chapter has survivor testimony and brings students together from different schools. And it actually created an interesting opportunity because, well, when we met in person, the students would come on their own after school to the Holocaust Center. Now the kids are at home and we were joined by their parents often. So it became a really special family education program. So that was an interesting opportunity. And we like to celebrate the survivors that are part of the program at the end of the year. And a special opportunity was we invited some of the students who are part of the program to deliver flowers to the survivors to their homes. And they, you know, I have a great picture of, you know, a student dropping an orchid plant and standing 10 feet away with a sign saying, thank you for being part of our program. <laughs> so, you know, it's, wow. we've, because we're part of Jewish Family and Children's Services, which is serving more than 80,000 clients who are in great need, our education programs are coming together to help people who are in isolation and, and suffering as well. So we're inspiring our volunteers who were once driving survivors to make phone calls to, to seniors who are at home on a regular basis to do grocery delivery. So that's been inspiring. And our Speakers Bureau program has made a tremendous splash. So in just a week, we were able to get several members of our Speakers Bureau in their 80s and 90s onto Zoom, ha learning how to share their screens, you know, putting together dynamic audiovisual presentations. And now we're reaching over a thousand people a week. That's it's really tremendous. And, and well, there is, of course, there's the distance of the screen. I mean, I see you now where we're, you know, hundreds of miles away, mm -hmm. but I, we're close enough. We've received a lot of feedback. We've been surveying everybody who's been part of the programs. It seems that a lot of students are actually connecting very well in this format. They're asking questions. We take questions in the chat bar and a lot of kids ask questions. Well, sometimes maybe one would be intimidated to be in a room of 300 people in an assembly and raise mm -hmm. their hand in front of all their peers and stand up and ask a question. They feel less intimidated to type in their question in the chat bar. And it's amazing to me that these survivors are continuing to inspire and to make that connection with students through the screen. It's um, you know beyond my expectations. So really proud of, of the work of our Speakers Bureau. We've also, our university fellows who I mentioned before, 
they are doing a lot of small group work with our students. So this has been really important because we find that sometimes when you're, you know, where in person you could lead a seminar for two hours and everyone be engaged and in discussion, you can't do a Zoom class for two hours. I mean, you lose people. Doesn't matter who you're talking to, you lose them. And so we've had to pivot the way we do our teaching. I mean, I have a whole syllabus and I just had to, you know, flip it on its head because everything that worked in the classroom does not work online. So we're constantly looking at dynamic ways to engage in breakout rooms, um, meeting more frequently in small groups. And the university fellows have been a really essential piece in that because they connect with these students. And, and we have to remember that so many of these high school students are going through a lot of challenge, anxiety, stress, mm-hmm. um, isolation. Um, you know, kids are worrying about how their parents are going to pay rent and where the groceries are coming from. Mm-hmm. And I'll say that these university fellows have been able to kind of identify challenging situations. Um, JFCS has a tremendous um, offering of clinical services and grocery delivery and all these things. So I'm really proud that our work, while our mission is to teach about the Holocaust and genocide, we have also been able to connect with people on such a human level and to support them during very challenging times. And I'm proud you know, to be part of an, an institution of human services where if I identify someone who needs support, my colleagues are able to follow up and provide that. And in this time, it's more important than ever. Very, very um, inspiring. Nonetheless, what are you missing most? I mean, we, we also, we have also, you know, in many ways felt that the transition was far more seamless than I would have expected. That, like you said, students actually long for an opportunity to connect as well as community members. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had also our successes. But, it, you know, there's always a bit the sense for me that it also works particularly well because we've had pre-existing relationships with each other. So we recognize each other on the screen. And, and at the same time, there's some, some, some closeness and proximity that is part of learning and engagement that is harder, I think, sometimes to, to gain on the, on the screen. In particular, considering that we're dealing with difficult subject matters. And so I think that's a really difficult one, I think, sometimes to navigate. How do you now bring young people into these discussions about the Holocaust that can be sometimes quite painful um, and you know unsettling if you are maintaining, so to speak, by necessity, social distancing. So on the one side, you are engaging in a process that by its nature requires opening up and connecting with them, right? They're, they're looking for that. And at the same time, you're doing it in a format that at least overtly seems to always keep each other so to speak, at, at a distance. So I find that, you know, sometimes a little bit more challenging than if I would be in the classroom and I, I could see them. And if, if I you feel, okay, I've overwhelmed them a little bit, I could still get them, grab them on the way out and, and talk to them or something like that. And so I think that's, I think, with our subject matter sometimes um, comes, comes the challenge of, of how to navigate Absolute, that. Absolutely. You, I that? Mean, you, you can't see someone's body language. I mean, you could see if they're slouching, you can see if they, you know, are turning away from the screen, you know, or they mute their screen. You know, I, I find it challenging. You know, I, I taught a seminar one week and one of my students, you could see was starting to kind of drift away and lie down on her bed and, and um, you know, and then she muted her screen and then she just dropped off. 
And I, you can't walk out the door and, and you can't say to your students, I'll be right back, or you can't follow them out the door. And not until after class did I reconnect with her and, you know, uh, learn a little bit more that she was going through a, a crisis at home and she wasn't sleeping properly. And um, that's what was going on. But I had no way in the moment, I could see that she was drifting away, but I could not walk out the door and follow her. Um, and, and that's really hard, I find, because we care about our students. Honestly, I'm anxious mm -hmm. a little bit about next year because I think so much of the success of our current seminars and fellowships were based on the fact that we had an in-person human foundation. So we went into shelter in place in March. Mm -hmm. Many of our programs began in December. So I had several months with these students in person. We knew each other, they trusted me, they knew each other. And I think that foundation really helped us get to where we are right now in working in the virtual space. But I think even with schools hopefully opening up, it may be a while before we're bringing together students from different schools, where we're bringing survivors into a classroom, you know, all these things. So we're, our, our staff is going into a deep retreat this summer where we're spending multiple days mm -hmm. on really, you know, we've surveyed all of our programs, you know, really trying to explore and also speak with our colleagues, you know, like you and like many of the other Holocaust centers and universities, you know, how are we going to build our programs for next year? Because I think that this challenge with the pandemic is not going away. And, you know, we've been struggling for years with what is the future of Holocaust and genocide education in the post-survivor era. That's been a constant project. And now mm -hmm. overnight, we have to figure out what's the future of Holocaust and genocide education in a virtual space, perhaps for the next 18 months. And, and that's something I'm yeah. concerned about. No, no. And it's, I think, you know, for us also being in Texas, we had to initially only cover the span of about four weeks. So we went into remote teaching after spring break. And that was, you know, we were absorbed by the kind of heroic, you know, undertaking, converting all classes, everything. And so, and everyone chipped in, but now we're all of a sudden teaching a regular summer already all online and we're readying ourselves for the fall. So that becomes something an entirely different process also because, you know, I think initially you were so absorbed by the, how do you do it and how it works and whatever. Whereas now you kind of figured that out, but what you still don't know is you have no end in sight. And mm -hmm. I think that psychologically speaking is, is also something that changes and affects again, what you're doing from, you know, being right in the middle of the moment and just trying your very best that you can do throwing some kind of programs online and, um, doing some outreach and everyone happily going along with it because it's part of this heroic first moment, you know, that you're experiencing. So we'll see how we can do this in the future together. Um, but it also, you know, has been a blessing. So I've been enjoying very much learning more about you. And I think part of what we're realizing is that this makes it much easier to have sometimes also events that otherwise would have been local to have them a little bit more global and to bring in people from elsewhere into these conversations. And I think that's also, again, a Absolutely. huge benefit. Absolutely. I mean, we've launched this whole public programming initiative. We usually, Yom HaShoah is our large public program that goes you know, beyond the classrooms. Mm -hmm. And now we've had an ongoing book club and lecture series. Actually, in, in 45 minutes, we're having you know, uh, an author, Glenn Kurtz, 
speak about three minutes in Poland. You know, people are coming in. We had a book club last week um, reading the, the Boy on the Wooden Box, and we were able to invite the Chapman professor to join us, and she wrote the forward and helped write the book. So I think, you know, you're bringing together these opportunities mm -hmm. where, you know, previously we wouldn't have, you know, flown someone up to speak for 15 minutes, right? It's not, that's not how it works. And, right. you know, a public program is months in planning and, you know, you work with the space and you do the outreach and you bring the people in and you get the catering and, and all the pieces. And now we're able to pull these programs together pretty quickly, bring in partners. I mean, our Yom HaShoah program was very interesting. That was really our first large scale virtual program. When we met in person over the years, you know, we would be 300, 400 people in a good year. We have 3,000 viewers for our program. Wow. Blown away, you know, yeah. I mean, we did it on Facebook Live and, and on YouTube. Yes. And um, I mean, it was a tremendous effort. I, I learned a lot about how to do everything. And we did, you know, most of it live. And we brought in 16 different clergy and, and all these different moving parts. Wow. But all these people who didn't come to Yom HaShoah before connected with us and people from all over the world. Mm -hmm. We've been asking, we've changed our registration process for our programs and we're asking for zip codes now. And it is just fascinating to see people coming in from not just the Bay Area, San Francisco, but you know, we've got people from Canada, people from Israel, people from Europe, um, people from all over the country. So that's, that's something that is um, a great opportunity. And I think that wherever we are, you know, six, 12, 18 months from now, I do believe that this public programming that we're offering virtually is something that will continue because I think it reaches people in their homes and we're creating a great community who's interested. And that's something that I hadn't thought to explore before shelter in place. No, I think that's very true that even though it's an enforced process of learning, it has given us actually something that otherwise we probably would have not explored in the same manner. I mean, you're located in a large urban center with a little bit of a traffic issue uh, on and off. So people would have also been reluctant sometimes maybe to come to your events. You're offering things, you know, in this vein, and all of a sudden you can connect people much more easily. I just had a conversation about another event where, you know, People were saying, well, historically, we would have had events on Sundays with catering and people coming in to avoid traffic. Now that you're doing things online, people don't want to give away their Sundays. They want to do this Wednesday evening. So exactly. it's, it's a different way of connecting. Been a big pleasure getting to know you. Uh, thank you very much for being on our show, um, Professor Valente. Thank you so much, Morgan. This was really fantastic to hear about the really inspiring work that you guys are doing and that we can also learn a little bit well, about. Well, thank you, you know, for this oh, opportunity. Yeah. And, and you've inspired us. Our, our staff is already talking. Should we have a podcast program? <laughs> so thank you for your creativity <laughs> inspiring us because it's we need to continue to think of all these different ways to connect with our communities. And I really feel privileged to have been brought into your community today. Hope that, that one day thank, we'll meet in person. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Definitely. We look forward to that day. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. You can find us on our website at utdallas.edu forward slash Ackerman. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at Holocaust Podcast. 
To learn more about our guest in the Holocaust Center in San Francisco, please be sure to also visit their website at holocaustcenter.jfcs.org and follow them on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for JFCS Holocaust Center. Thank you for listening. Until next time.